Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Jeffrey Kunkler with Carlisle Patchen and Murphy LLP. Uh, he joined there in 2014 and uh, became a partner in 2018. And his practice primarily centers around estate planning for individuals and business. Uh, good morning. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here and share some wisdom with your listeners. Great. Appreciate it. So what made you pursue uh, a career uh, in law? Yeah, I sort of always knew I wanted to uh, to be an attorney, um, dating at least back to high school. I did uh, speech and debate, actually, and enjoyed the argumentative side of things. Sort of always dreamed I'd be in the courtroom. I don't know if that's from watching A Few Good Men or what exactly, but I uh, thought I'd be a trial lawyer. Um, having done some internships, um, I saw the schedule of trial lawyers. You're at the mercy of the court. If they say jump, you jump, and you know those lawyers would be working you know, a hundred hours for a couple of weeks and they wouldn't do anything for a while. Then they'd be on again and traveling all over the country for some types of litigation. And so I ultimately decided that litigation probably wasn't for me. And my first job out of law school was in estate planning. And that's what I've done for the last decade and truly kind of love the practice area, but uh, knew I wanted to be a lawyer, just the type of lawyers, what sort of changed along the way. So, you know, how did you get to where you are now? I mean, kind of give us the, the, uh, the, the story about Jeff. Sure, sure. So uh, I went to Ohio State University for law school, uh, graduated from there in the middle of a recession. And so um, job prospects weren't great. Um, the way law school typically works is you have an internship at a law firm and then they hire you on and that's where you start your career. Well, I didn't know in law school, I, I would meet my now wife who was not from the small town I was from, who was from Columbus. And so I was the crazy person who turned down my job offer to go back home and said, I'll see what kind of career I can find. And uh, the only real opportunity that presented itself was at a boutique um, law firm that did estate planning and elder law work. And so um, they were starting their firm, and so we helped grow that together for a few years. They now have, I don't know, probably more than a dozen lawyers and offices all over the place. I'd always sort of dreamed of being at a full-service firm. Um, that's where I had done my internship work back in my hometown, and full-service just means we have lawyers who do everything. I've got mm -hmm. real estate lawyers and litigators. We have people who handle you know, family law disputes. We have estate planners like I do. We've got sort of everything, and the, the purpose of that is that when my clients call me, I, I do their estate plan, but they might need a lawyer for something else. And at, at the boutique, I'd have to refer them out to a divorce lawyer or a real estate lawyer or whatever. But now my clients can be served in all the various areas. And so when an opportunity presented itself, um, I guess six years ago, it's been that long to move to my current firm. I, I jumped and you know got into the sort of the business model I'd always looked for, um, have done just the estate planning piece primarily, though, as I've worked with more and more families, um, you know, a number of those people own a small business or have a side hustle. And so right. as my firm represents primarily closely held businesses, I've gotten more and more involved with the business aspect of things, everything from the succession planning to just day-to-day -day stuff. I had a client email me right before this call. She just bought out a, um, another business and with that comes a new lease. And so she fired over her lease saying, you know, can you take a look at this lease for me? And um, you know, we can happily do that kind of stuff for her. So that, that's sort of her, I got to where I'm at. So, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, that you primarily do estate and elder law. So can you explain what the difference is between the two? 
Yeah, there, there really isn't much of a difference as the, the, the people would like you to think who have flashy websites and domain names that they, they claim it's some sort of, uh, you know, unique or different area. It's the same tools. You know, we're using powers of attorney, wills and trusts, trying to figure out, you know, where do you want your stuff to go when you pass with the added spin that we're now focusing primarily on retirees. And the one sort of new thing they're trying to figure out is largely how do we deal with long-term care expenses? So, you know, right. if me or my spouse needs an assisted living or a nursing home, what am I going to do? And so elder law takes the same tools. We use different types of trusts and wills and things and figures out, you know, how do we help you pay for that? And that could be private pay. If you've got the, the wherewithal and the resources to do that, it might be recommending they talk with someone like you, you know, to either invest properly or get an insurance policy to cover it or, if options one and two aren't available, there's some legal techniques we can use to help qualify for different types of government benefits. And so I need to be well-versed in areas of veterans affairs law, for instance. So I'm accredited with the VA because they help veterans pay for that type of care and then Medicaid ultimately is the largest payer of nursing home type care. And so um, being familiar with those laws kind of makes it become elder law, but any elder law attorney could set up an estate plan and a state planner may or may not want to dive into the Medicaid MBA work. Some of our older attorneys have said, I didn't learn this in law school. I'm not going to learn it now. You younger guys can figure it out. And so it tends to be the younger generation of people who are coming up. And that's just a product of, I mean, look around. They're building senior living facilities everywhere you look. And so um, someone's going to figure out a way to pay for that. And there are some legal techniques that uh, can be used. So you talked about setting up a, you know, a trust. How would, you know, someone um, setting up a trust, how would that help them, you know, when it comes to the long-term care? Yeah, so trust can be used for tons and tons of purposes. Um, sometimes we're doing it because, you know, your kids are too young to inherit the property. Maybe, you know, if someone has special needs, they need a special type of a trust. We get into the elder law space. Um, there's really a couple ways they can be utilized. Uh, and it's primarily um, based off the way the VA and Medicaid laws are written. But at a super high level, this is the, the 30,000 foot view for sure. Um, you can use trust to move assets outside of your name. And if it's far enough in advance from when you need care, those assets might not be a part of what they call the spend down. So if, if you needed to check in the nursing home today, they'd ask, you know, Gary, what's in your name? How much money do you have? If the answer is more than $2,000, they'd say, well, spend your own money, Gary. And when you run out, now Medicaid will step in and help you. Well, this is super simplified, but if we'd met 10 years before that day happened and then we'd say, let's move some assets out of your name, you know, maybe some of your savings, your home, certain things. And enough time passes. In the case of Medicaid, there's a five-year look back then those assets that we got out of your name, we don't have to disclose them and they're not a part of that spend down process. So there's the proactive side of things where you do that. We can also reactively, let's say you called and said, my mom's in the nursing home, you know, she's got a hundred thousand dollars left, but what do we do? Can we save any of that? There's some reactive planning you can do as well. That's very complicated for today's discussion, but just know that if your listeners are in that situation, there's planning that can be done, even if it's too late to plan proactively. Um, and in all, in both of those instances, we would use trusts to hold whatever it is we're getting out of your name, because we don't know what happens. You might need access to those things again in the future. And so we don't want to just give them outright to someone and expose them to liability, risk, all sorts of those, those types of things. Two questions off of that. So the first one is, is that I've heard people talk and say, oh, well, I was told to just, you know, my mom's got this money, just take the money and put it in my name. Um, and then it's not my mom's name. And then she can go into the nursing home and Medicare will pay for that. Um, you just said that there's a five-year look back. So what happens in that type of situation if somebody were to do that? Yeah, so a couple things. One, the, the gift to just the son who's going to take care of mom, there's too many risks involved there. And it might not be son's own 
bad doing. What, what happens if after you give the gift, daughter-in-law doesn't want to be daughter-in-law anymore and half your money walks away with a former spouse? What happens if, you know, son gets in an accident and someone's suing him because, you know, he ran a school bus off the road or something along those lines? There's too much risk to the outright gift side of things anyways. But to answer more directly your question, if a gift was made, which Medicaid calls an improper transfer, just to use the lingo, within that five-year period, if... If the money's still there, you can essentially give it back and it'll be back in her hands subject to the spend down. If the money's gone, then you can be in real trouble because Medicaid says for every dollar you give away, they're going to calculate what they call a penalty. So in rough figures, let's say you gave away that hundred grand, they would divide the size of that gift by the average cost of a nursing home. Let's call it 6,000, just so the math's easy to do in our heads. They'd take your hundred grand divided by six, they'd get, you know, you're the finance guy, tell me the answer, you know, 14, somewhere in that range. Right. Um, and they'd say, even though you're out of money, grandma, for the next 14 months, because that money you gave away, we're not going to help you out. You're either going to have to move right. back home or find some other way to pay. After you've waited out your 14 month penalty, now you can get onto Medicaid. And so you can be in some serious trouble. And we hear stories like that all the time. And there's probably some that work, right? They give it to the kid and 10 years pass, nothing goes wrong. But the problem would be, what if the money's not there for some reason? you can get your parents in some serious trouble. And so um, before you give away those size of assets, you definitely got to talk with professionals. And that could be on the finance side, the legal side. Hopefully it's sort of a team conversation. Right. And that's, I mean, you know, I was here, you know, with, with small business advisors, we're, we're constantly preaching team and constantly, you know, talking about making sure you have the right team and, and create your plan. Um, because the thing that we always run into is people don't plan. And if you don't plan, then it's reactionary. And as you know, most of the time, if it's just reactionary, you're making mistakes. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's huge in this long-term care space. If you wait too long, you can't get insurance anymore. If you right. don't have that five-year look back, you can't rely on benefits anymore. And so you got to be proactive on those things. Right. So in going into back to the, to the trust piece of it, lots of times, you know, I'm going to say, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, grandpa, they don't want to do a trust because they think that they're giving up all of their rights um, and that whoever they name is going to be the person in, you know, they're going to, they're going to have all my money and I'm not going to be able to do what I want. What do you say to that? Yeah. So a couple things, it really depends what type of trust you're doing in this long-term care space. You're probably going to have to give up some control. If we're not talking about long-term care, it's a trust for someone who's holding it till their kids are old enough or something, you probably retain the control to change the trust, to revoke the trust, do whatever you want with. But in this long-term care space, you probably do need to give up some control. What I'll say is that you can maintain some, um, let's call them purse strings, some ability to make tweaks to it. So in a lot of the documents we're doing, if, if we're moving money out of someone's name, we don't know with certainty what life's going to bring and they may need access to it. So mom and dad probably can't be the beneficiary of that trust, mm -hmm. but and they're going to pick someone to be the trustee. Let's say they pick their son. Well, if the son as trustee isn't doing what they want, it's okay to retain the ability to change the trustee. So they could fire their son and put their daughter in place. And then the daughter hopefully would do what they want and they can't name themselves, but they could keep switching this out. They can also control who inherits the money. So in, instead of an outright gift to you and it Gary, it's yours, you do what you want with, I could hold it in a trust that says it's held until I've died. When I die, when I write it up, Gary, you're my beneficiary. But I retain the ability to change that. I can't make myself the beneficiary, but if you've made me mad and you won't facilitate what I want, I'll cut you out of my plan and leave it to the other kids. I'll leave it all to my church or my alma mater or something like that. So you can have some, some threats. You can't have direct control in most of these circumstances. Otherwise, the government would say, these are still your assets. 
we're going to count it towards our calculation. So you are going to have to give up some control, but it's not nearly the same as if you just cut a check to your kid and hope they give it back to you someday. So when, when you put these, uh, these trusts together in these, in these elder plans, what, how often um, after you put them together, do you meet with your clients? Yeah, that's a great question. And it varies a lot depending on the family situation dynamic. I have some people who something occurs and they reach out to me very routinely on these. Um, if it's a real proactive plan, we're, you know, I'm 65 and we've moved some funds and who knows if I'll ever need the nursing home. Mm-hmm. Sometimes going to pass. I, I try to make sure every client's coming in periodically, whether they're on the estate planning side or the elder law side. If I haven't seen you in three years, then life's probably changed enough that we ought to sit down. So I invite all clients to come back in at least that often. If I haven't heard from you in any other way, I'm going to reach out and just sit back down. And, um, you know, that could be completely different. If you set a plan up and mom or dad thought they were going to be home for five years and someone had a fall three years from now, you know, two years from now, you're probably going to call me and say, oh my gosh, what do we do? And so they can be pretty different, but certainly I recommend it every few years. We see way too many plans where, particularly on the estate planning side, mom and dad created a simple will back when they had their first kid. Now their kids are 25 or 30 and someone like their, like you, their financial advisor says, what's the status of your estate plan? I said, well, we did one 30 years ago and they say, okay, well, who's your lawyer? And it's like, well, I don't know where he or she is. They may have retired, could be dead for all I know. And so um, a lot of lawyers don't do a good job staying in contact with their clients. So we try to be proactive on that front. And, you know, I don't want to get in a situation where I don't have good contact info, but I'm holding their will or something like that. And so we want to see you every few years at a minimum. If I have a house inside this trust, is it really difficult for me to be able to sell it? It, it depends how they're structured. So a lot of times, um, we'll use what's called a life estate. That means you have the right to stay in it, occupy it. You get your discount for being owner occupied for senior citizens discount. In some states we have homestead taxes and not have the asset considered yours. You probably need the sign off of the trustee to do it. Otherwise, um, you know, Medicaid would say you have too much control over this house. And so you're probably going to need a trustee to be a part of the transaction when you go to sell it for that type of a trust. All, you know, some huge majority of the trusts I create aren't for, elder law planning. They're just, you know, my my home that I'm sitting in right now happens to be held in my trust. Right. I have the full ability as my own trustee, along with my wife as co-trustee to refinance our house, to sell our house to her once. There's no real difficulty in it being in a trust. The nature of the trust doesn't make it harder to sell the house. What might make it harder is that if we're telling Medicaid, I don't have control of the asset, then you probably need a third party to be a part of that transaction. So in that limited space, there's the extra hoop of your son or daughter has to come to closing with you. What I'm hearing you say is, is that, that there are different types of trust uh, depending on what you need. So you can't really just do the, hey, I'm going to go on to, to, to that online place and, and pull down a trust and create my trust and, and I'm done. That, that's exactly right. There's, I mean, in the last week, I've probably prepared five or six different types of trust depending on circumstances for people. And, you know, there are certainly dozens that are out there there's probably some people who fit into pretty close to what our standard form looks like. uh, And that's okay, but you really need someone to guide you through to make sure you get the right instrument. I had a a call yesterday. Someone said, you know, I'm, this is my family situation. Here's what I need. My brother's in the same boat. Would it be possible for my brother to just kind of use your forms and swap the names out? And I said, Oh gosh, no, please don't do that. You know, I don't know enough about his, you know, income situation, his taxes, his assets. It, It, don't we, you know, we're not taking a plan and just, you know, plugging a new family's name into them. We're thinking you're, what you're paying us for is the legal advice. If you're viewing us just as a, a repository of documents, then yeah, go get legal zoom or something. But if you're looking for sound legal advice, that's where we come in. As you tell me your situation right. and I advise and counsel you as to what might be appropriate for you. And so 
Um, yeah, particularly with trust, I would be really worried about LegalZoom um, or other online vendors. There's some documents that are a little simpler. You know, each state has standard healthcare and financial power of attorneys. Right. Most states do at least. You know, here in Ohio, my forms are customized, but you can get a pretty good healthcare power of attorney if you just go on to one of the local hospital's websites. And, and that's probably going to be pretty sufficient. Should a lawyer review it? Maybe, but that's different to me than your will or your trust. I mean, can right. you imagine you've worked your whole life for whatever the nest egg looks like, and you're going to try to save a couple hundred bucks by downloading some form. I guarantee you're going to cost your family more because you've not executed it right, or you've done something wrong, or you don't fund it. Something's going to happen that the couple hundred bucks you saved is not going to end up being best for your family. Yeah. I, I, you know, you just hit, you know, hit big nail on the head there when you talked about, it's like, you know, they, people try to save a couple dollars and in, in the long run, it costs so much more, you know, on, on the backside, um, you know, in taxes or just aggravation or whatever, um, you know, I'm constantly preaching to business owners, you know, as they're going into uh, a business partnership with somebody, you know, you need to have, make sure that you have your, you know, operating agreement or bylaws or, or partnership agreement whatever it is, and you need to have that ironed out before you guys start doing this, because everything's great now, but then yep. when it's not good, it's not good. Same thing with families, when someone dies, it's like everybody's happy and everything else until money's involved, and then yep. it kind of gets a little bit ugly. I mean, we see it a ton on both sides. On the business side, you're exactly right. If you're the sole person and it's a single member LLC, could you get by without an operating agreement? probably you get the default laws from your state, which are probably somewhat reasonable. But as soon as you have that partner, it is completely yep. different. In Ohio, I just had this conversation yesterday with one of my business colleagues and a couple of prospective clients. You know, in Ohio, you and I go into business together. We each contribute 50 bucks. We are 50-50 owners. Mm -hmm. If later today we have an expense and I contribute $25 to it, my share of the company goes up pro rata by what we right. put in. So now all of a sudden I'm the 60-40 owner and you're not in majority control anymore. Right. That's probably not how you want your business to work. Exactly. So if you do an operating room, we can say what happens for reimbursement of expenses, those kinds of things. And so absolutely, that's important. Same thing on the, the family side. Any Anytime we're administering an estate where there's no will in place because they didn't want to see a lawyer or didn't want to talk about death or whatever, I can almost guarantee that. And with near certainty, almost every time we come across one, those end up costing more than if we'd have had even a simple will outlining who's in charge, what do you do with the assets. And some of the problem is that a will says things like, you know, my executor can sell my house and my car and they can dispose of my stocks and they can pay my taxes. Well, no will. We don't have, you didn't tell us that. So the court says, well, we must have wanted the court to sign off. So now right. the court has to approve the sale of the house and the car and your lawyer is going back and forth to court a bunch of times that gets expensive. So, um, yeah, absolutely. A little bit of, uh, little, you know, planning and payment on the front end helps a lot. And then that's true in a lot of areas. I mean, in your line of work with taxes, with any number of things, getting out in front of it's easier than fixing the mess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, many people wait and come to us after they have the mess and then we have to fix it. You know, so I got this huge taxable distribution this year. It's already in my hands. What am I supposed to do with that? Right. Um, and that's and that, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been doing this podcast and, and bringing people like you on it to be able to to let people, you know, really know. It's like, look, you really need to do the planning and think about this. Um, Makes complete sense. Lots of times we hear uh, people talk about asset protection um, and many times people think that that has to do with, oh, my, my, my assets are diversified. But truly, what, is, what does it mean when somebody talks about you know, asset protection and, and planning for 
you know, elders. Yeah, that's another one of those buzzwords you see a lot. Um, and it can mean a couple of different things depending on the circumstances. Uh, in some regards, asset protection gets used largely in the elder law space to talk about that long-term care planning. I know, um, you know, there's um, a number of folks who kind of use that as asset protection planning. To me, it's a little broader. I have clients who we do asset protection for a number of reasons. Um, what you're trying to do is make sure that there's not some liability out there that can pierce what it is you've worked for. So, you know, in, in the business context, if you're engaged in a risky profession, you wouldn't want your liability to cause you to lose your investment and savings and those types of things. So we're protecting your assets. A lot of times we use limited liability companies and trusts to do that. Right. Asset protection in the elder law space typically means we're trying to get as much of your nest egg to your kids or charity or wherever you're hoping to leave it. And how do we do that? Well, you're one, you're, you're trying to solve that long-term care problem. Two, um, the, the other big one's taxes. You know, is there some estate or capital gains tax problem that we can solve so that more of your assets get to your kids? And then, you know, certainly probate can be a big cost. Depending on what state you're in, using a will and going through the court system can be really involved or complicated. Yeah. Ohio has a very supervised probate process. Um, and so that it, it tends to be more expensive to administer a in a state than a trust here in Ohio. I've dealt with some states where, you know, the probate court's not a big deal. We have a lawyer who's licensed in Illinois. So I helped with an Illinois estate not that long ago. And in Illinois, if your family all signs off and says, this all looks above board, it's all kosher. Well, then the court says that's fine by us. We don't need to see any details. Well, here in Ohio, they need the details. So probate could take away a huge chunk of your estate because the court wants to see down to the canceled checks in some counties, what assets came in, what did you spend the money on? And you have to balance it down to the various cents even if the family agrees, the court still has to sign off. So in the elder law space, those are the big three, the probate, taxes, and long-term care. But asset protection generally is broader than that. You know, if you have a rental property, I don't want your tenant to get hurt and sue you and you lose your investment account. And so I'm going to isolate your rental property into a, into a company. And if you consult on the side, in addition to your main job, I wouldn't want bad advice you gave to cost you to lose that rental property. And so we kind of try to bucket into little things surrounding any risk with some layer of protection. And it isn't all legal work either. Asset protection might mean go get proper insurance, whether that's for your business, an umbrella policy, et cetera. And I don't sell any type of insurance, but it's a really good extra layer of defense that if something goes wrong, you've got you know a company willing to back you so that you don't lose those assets. But that, that's sort of the concept at a high level. So you know, which, who, who's an ideal client for you? Yeah, um, there's a couple of real kind of broad general buckets for me. And then the firm's a slightly different answer. So I'll give you sort of three answers to that, if that's all okay. right. So on the, on the younger side, um, I have a young family myself. I have a lot of people who are similarly situated to me who married, starting a family, a couple of young kids who need to get sort of their first plan in place that if mom and dad pass too young, you know, who raises the kids? Right. How old should the kids be when they inherit? We probably don't want them to get at age 18. So we should we hold it till they're out of college, let's hope, maybe married, maybe into a career. Um, so I have, I have a lot of those. I also have a lot of people who someone like you identifies, you did an initial plan 20 years ago and now it's sort of gotten out of date. Let's plan more for retirement. So I have a lot of people who are nearing right around that sort of retirement age that their kids are probably grown. They don't need guardians name for them anymore, but they're probably going to now name their kids to serve as their power of attorney, as their executor, as their trustee, et cetera. Uh, and so I see a lot of folks in that age, they may or may not be worried about the elder law concerns. Some of those folks have, you know, the resources to pay for that type of care. Some of them have bought insurance policies. So I might not be talking elder law to that group, but that's sort of the second big group I see. Okay. And then as a firm being full service, we represent a lot of closely held businesses. And so the, the ideal firm client would be someone who owns a business who could utilize us when they have, you know, an employment problem with an employee 
Um, the lease I mentioned earlier that we're reviewing when you're buying a building. Um, my first call this morning was a piece of litigation that a client's involved in. And so, you know, those clients can utilize five or six different types of services we can provide. So as a firm, the answer would be business owners. For me individually, you know, I don't know the majority, nine out of 10 of my clients just work for our company somewhere and don't own a business. And that's perfectly fine. Happy to work with those folks too. Right. So what are the uh, first steps if somebody wants to uh, talk to you to, to find out what they need to do and, and move forward? What do they need to do? Yeah. So uh, if they're completely ready to go, you know, drop me a line, shoot me an email. I generally try to give an initial consultation without a, a consultation fee. So people aren't scared off that they're paying just to get to the table. And so um, I would send out an intake form that would give me the details, you know, who are you, spouse, kids, gets your balance sheets. They bring that to the first meeting and I'm using the word meeting loosely. We're doing a lot of stuff virtually, right. of course, right. um, but you typically bring that to the first meeting. We'd review that together. And the goal would be after we've sat down for, you know, an hour or so, I can identify here's what you have and it's great, congratulations, or maybe here's what you're missing and what I propose for you to consider. Um, if people aren't quite that ready, there's a lot of great information on our website. We've, our intake form's even there so you can see what it would look like. And so just at cpmlaw.com, we have um, our insights page. We write you know monthly newsletters on estate planning and business and litigation. And there's a ton of info out there that if you were not quite ready to call the lawyer yet, but to learn about, whether it's estate planning, business law, other law, et cetera, you could get a lot of good info from our website. Right. So the, um, so, so for that first meeting, you typically want them to have the, the intake form filled out and, and back up with it just to be able to, to sit down and, and talk through it. It's preferred. It just keeps it more efficient rather than spending the first 20 minutes asking you your full name and address and your birth, date of birth and then go do that with your wife and then each of your kids. And then finally, 20 minutes later, we've gotten into the meat of the conversation. We can bypass a lot of that. Additionally, my penmanship's horrible. If I'm the one jotting these details down, there's a high likelihood there's either going to be a number transposed or I'm not going to be able to read a letter. And so if you give me the data, it's more likely to get to you know my assistant intact than if I'm right. the one keeping the notes. And so uh, selfishly, it helps in that regard too. And then, you know, if you come to the meeting with a balance sheet prepared, you're probably going to get most of the items on it. The number of times where people don't take that step and then we're in the meeting and, oh, wait, don't we have an account over at that one place or what's right. that annuity thing we had that one time? And so if the exercise of writing down the family and your balance sheet and bringing your past documents often brings them to the meeting a lot more prepared than they otherwise would be. But it's not an absolute requirement. I have one where um, someone was referred to me just yesterday and said, can we meet Monday? And I said, sure, here's my intake for me. So well, I have, do I have to do this before Monday? I said, well, no, I need it at some point. But if there's urgency to this, let's have the conversation and see if we're a good fit on Monday. I, I, I know that we, we have a, a client questionnaire that we always ask people to fill out. I mean, because it, again, it's going to give us the basic information about them. And when we don't have that, it does. I'm, I'm the same way. It, it takes so much longer, you know, kind of in, in that initial meeting, trying to get this, this, this data from them to be able to then talk. Um, so, yeah, I definitely, I think with anybody who's, who's listening to this really needs to understand it's like doing a little bit of homework ahead of time is really going to make more useful time when you're with the professional that, that you want, especially when you're looking at it, hey, you're giving them that first hour for free because you're talking about stuff. So right. you know, make good use of it. Yep, I, I completely agree. And even if we didn't move forward, just the exercise of putting together a current balance sheet is a useful tool to have saved somewhere in your household. If something happens to you, your kids are gonna have a starting point. And so 
Um, now, if they're working with you, you probably have one prepared for them. You can just email it over to me, so that's easy. But if they're more of a do-it-yourselfer, um, then that exercise is helpful, even if you don't end up putting a plan together with me. Right. So uh, what would you like to share with our listeners that I haven't already asked? Great question. Um, I mean, we've covered a lot. So we, we talked about most of my practice areas. I, I would just say that, um, and, I, and I said this on something else recently, but if you think you might need a lawyer for something, um, you, you probably do. Don't be afraid to call us. People are always worried about, you know, what about the hourly rate? If I call you, I'm going to get a bill for it. Um, much of what I do, we do on a flat fee nowadays. I'm always willing to have that first phone call or conversation. And so um, it, it's going to be beneficial to bring us in on whatever the dispute is, probably earlier than you think it's necessary. You know, the number of times someone has come to us that, hey, we entered this contract and we were, you know, now it's going sideways. What do we do? And it's like, well, you shouldn't have had these terms in the agreement. We're stuck by them now. I mean, I'm helping someone with a cease and desist letter earlier this week where had we had a certain provision in it, um, we would have had a stronger position now, but they, you know, we weren't involved uh, from the, from the start. And so um, I'd say, you know, don't be afraid to call and, and certainly in certain areas, use professionals. I mean, get properly licensed financial advice, go to an accountant for your taxes, you know, go to a doctor. You're not going to go to WebMD and try to fix, you know, your broken limb or disease or whatever it is you got. So same thing, like don't be on legal zoom, don't be Googling tax advice, hire a proper financial advisor. I mean, all that, uh, there are certain areas we just need a professional. Um, you know, they talked about the robo advisor replacing your industry. I, I don't think that's okay. happening anytime soon. I mean, you've got, you know, so many valuable insights to lend to people, particularly business owners. And so um, I think involving professionals is always a good idea from the outset. Well, you know, we really appreciate your time today. Um, and uh, good, good, great words of wisdom uh, that you've given us. Absolutely. Happy to be here and share it. If I could be of any help in another way, you know, happy to, you know, take a call or send an email out. So just want to be a resource for you and your clients and listeners. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. So today our guest was uh, Jeff uh, Conkler with Carlisle, Patchen and Murphy LLP. Thank you. This show has been produced by Market Domination LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.